LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, how do you excel when everything is changing? More than 2,000 years ago, Heraclitus, the ancient Greek philosopher, observed that, quote, there is nothing permanent except change. It's still true, isn't it? Change is a constant in all of our lives, change in where you live or what you do, change in your relationships, change in, in my case, the color of my hair, which is turning gray. Some changes, like having kids, are good. Some, like losing a loved one, are painful. But despite the inevitability of change, many of us aren't very good at dealing with it. We resist it, we deny it, and we pay a price for that. So today we're gonna try and learn how to become masters of change with the help of Brad Stolberg, best-selling author of The Practice of Groundedness, Peak Performance, and just out this week, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. He spoke with our producer, Caleb Bissinger. Here's Caleb. So before we get to my conversation with Brad, I want to tell a quick story. Back in the summer of 2000, Tommy Caldwell, who's one of the best rock climbers in the world, took a trip with his girlfriend and two other climbers to Kyrgyzstan. Just felt like kind of a dream come true out in the middle of this adventure with this girl that I was totally in love with. That's Caldwell speaking in a 2017 documentary. By day, they scaled towering granite walls. And at night, they slept on narrow cots that hung off the side of mountains a thousand feet in the air. And for Caldwell, who was 22 at the time, this was paradise. Right up until it wasn't. About a week into their trip, they were awoken in those cots by gunshots. We're getting shot at and you can't run away. You can't do anything. We're just sitting ducks up here. While Caldwell and his companions had been blissfully climbing, armed militants from a Taliban-affiliated group had trekked over the border, intent on overthrowing the Kyrgyz government. Now, as Caldwell and co. peered into the valley below them, they could see four of those armed militants gesturing furiously at them to come down, which they did. And so suddenly it kind of hits us. We're hostages right now. Caldwell, his girlfriend, and their climbing partners spent the next five days at gunpoint. On the sixth day, Caldwell and his friends were left alone with one captor, marching up a steep rock face. And the higher they climbed, the more ill at ease their captor became with the jagged path. And seeing this, Caldwell made a decision that would forever change his life. As I drew near, he didn't see me coming. Then when I was just a few feet away, my foot knocked off a loose piece of rock and his head started to turn. I reached out, grabbed the gun strap that was still over his shoulder, and I pulled as hard as I could. And he arched backwards, falling freely. A wheezing thud broke the silence from far below. The Americans took off running. They ran through the night. They made it to a Kyrgyz military base, contacted the U.S. Embassy, and were soon on their way home. Once he was stateside, Caldwell tried to get back to normal, back to being a fun-loving, carefree kid. But the harder he tried to tamp down the memory of what had happened, the harder he tried to forget that he'd killed someone, the more anxious and paralyzed he became. Tommy Caldwell's life had changed. But he couldn't bring himself to acknowledge that. And so, he was stuck. Fast forward 18 months. Caldwell is at home in Colorado, and he's shaping two-by-fours on a table saw to build a platform for his washer-dryer. Now, I'm going to spare you the gory details, but something went wrong, and Caldwell chopped off his finger. This would obviously be a terrifying experience for anyone. But for a rock climber, to lose a finger is to lose your livelihood. 
It's like a basketball star losing his hand or a soccer player her foot. Caldwell rushed to the hospital where doctors tried to reattach the severed digit, but they failed. And in the end, they told him he was down to nine and a half fingers and his days as a rock climber were over. So once again, in the blink of an eye, Tommy Caldwell's life changed. But this time, his reaction was different. After Kyrgyzstan, he'd learned the hard way that resisting change gets you nowhere. So he didn't ruminate, he didn't wallow. He accepted what had happened. And then he tried to integrate that change into his life, which for Caldwell meant figuring out how to climb again. It wasn't easy. Simple moves were now nearly impossible. And he knew he'd never be the same. He'd never be the climber he was. But that didn't mean he couldn't keep going. He could pick up the pieces and put his life back together just in a slightly new arrangement. And the results were remarkable. Two men have completed what's been roundly described as the most difficult free climb in the world. 30-year-old Kevin Jorgensen and 36-year-old Tommy Caldwell became the first to free climb a 3,000-foot sheer slab of granite to reach the summit of El Capitan. Tommy Caldwell learned how to befriend change. Can you? As Rufus mentioned, my guest today is Brad Stolberg. And his new book, Master of Change, introduced me to Tommy Caldwell. Brad calls him a paragon of the change mindset, someone who's both rugged and flexible. We'll talk in a minute about what that means and how it applies to you. But before I bring on Brad, let me just say one last thing. God willing, you will never be kidnapped in a foreign country or lose a body part in a freak accident. But you will experience significant, discombobulating changes as you go through life. And so the question is, will you let those changes destabilize you? Or will you find a way, like Caldwell did, to use them for growth? Hopefully, your answer is the latter. And hopefully, the conversation you're about to hear with Brad will give you a roadmap for how to do that. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Brad Stolberg, welcome to The Next Big Idea. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So, Brad, early in your new book, Master of Change, you list off all of the changes that you've undergone in the last few years. You had a second child, you left a secure job, moved across the country, stopped participating in a sport that had become a really big part of your identity, you had surgery, and you became estranged from certain members of your family. That's a huge amount of change. <laughs> some of it was good, some of it was bad, but still, it's a lot. I have to ask, just how are you doing? How are you handling this seismic change in your life? Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm doing uh, well enough. And I think that's important. You know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Uh, it has been a lot of change, but it's also just kind of normal. Uh, everyone has a story like this, and it might not be in the same dimensions of their life, but it, it, it feels like change is certainly not the exception. It's the rule. And as I'm sure we'll discuss, that's been a big reason why I decided to research and report for this book. Um, you forgot, I had my first child within that five-year period too. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And then there was the pandemic that we all lived through. So we'll add two more big ones to the list. And big ones is the right term there because the kinds of change that you went through and that you write about in the book, we're not talking about stuff like a new haircut or switching brands of toothpaste. We're talking about what you call disorder events define that for us? Yeah, I like to think of a disorder event as something that fundamentally uh, shifts how you relate to yourself and your environment and those around you. It is of a different texture than a small change, like the one that you've mentioned. Not to say that small changes are also always happening and those can also throw us for a loop. What's fascinating is um, 
The writer Bruce Feeler a few years ago did this really interesting anthropological study where he looked at the number of transitions that people have, and he found that the average adult has over 35 of these major changes in their life, which amounts to about one every 18 months. So again, it's kind of this common theme that we hear about things like this, and we think that these are singular events that happen to us. Uh, when in fact, being a mature adult is just a constant conversation with change. There's no escaping it. It's inevitable. And those 35 plus disorder events that that we experience in, in our adulthoods, they follow oftentimes a sort of predictable pattern, don't they, that you that you talk about in the book? Yeah, that's right. Researchers call this allostasis, and the shorthand for it is order, disorder, reorder. We humans, and really any living system, thrives during stability. We do mm-hmm. crave stability. And yet, we are constantly going through these cycles of disorder, reorder. And following a disorder event, following a change, we almost never get back to where we started. We find that stability somewhere new. Mm-hmm. So the old model of change, what scientists call homeostasis, describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, order. Mm-hmm. And it says that change is inherently bad, it's something to resist, and it's something that we need to immediately get back to where we were before it happened. And only more recently has the scientific community stepped back and said, hey, that's actually not a great model for how thriving people and thriving organizations and even thriving cultures interact with change. A much better model is order, disorder, reorder. Years ago, Brad, I read this book about playwriting by this British guy named Stephen Jeffries. And and there's a section where he describes the three-act structure, which is sort of the predominant mode of storytelling in in the West, both on stage and on screen. And I just want to read a quick little excerpt from it. I think you'll like this. He says, in a three-act play, people move from a safe environment to an unsafe environment, the sane world to a crazy world, and the characters are changed by the process. First, there is separation, followed by a transition, and then reincorporation when you return to your society but are changed. You know, I've always been sort of fascinated. Why is this structure so baked into the way that we tell stories on screen, on stage, in podcasts, in in books? And I think it's because that pattern of moving from the familiar to the strange to a new familiar in which you're changed from order to disorder to reorder, that's the pattern of our lives. It is the pattern of our life, and it's the pattern of life, period. It's also so prevalent across all of the world in cultural mythology. So Joseph Campbell was well known for the hero's journey, right? And as you're reading those three parts of the play, I'm thinking, man, does that parallel or mirror Campbell's hero's journey which essentially says in every single story, the hero starts out at home, goes off, crosses the abyss, crosses the threshold, goes into chaos and disorder and challenge, and then returns home the same but different. And whether it's Simba in The Lion King or Mirabelle in Encanto or Moses in The Israelites, there is a real narrative structure that I think mirrors life. And that's why we gravitate towards these stories because we're living them potentially every couple of months. So, okay, change is ubiquitous, and we're pretty crappy at it. I mean, you know, you say at one point in the book that we typically have like one of four responses to change. Either we just try to deny it. We say this isn't this isn't really happening. We try to resist it. We deny our agency. So we say, oh, I don't have any control over this. This isn't my problem. There's nothing I could do about this. Or we just sort of desperately try to get back to how things were, back to normal. I can relate with all of those patterns, and I'm sure you probably can too, and I'm sure most listeners can. And I think that tells us something, right? I think that tells us that change is is really scary. And so we do everything in our power to avoid it because it terrifies us. That's right. And I think that a lot of these maladaptive reactions to change really trace their self back to homeostasis, Mm. to this prevailing model of change that was first coined in the 1860s, but there's evidence of it in early science before the term science was even a thing. (sighs) You know, the early empiricists were talking about what essentially is homeostasis back in the 1500s. So 
it has shaped our cultural narrative and therefore our teachings around change. And this term allostasis wasn't first coined and developed until the 1980s. And it's taken about 30 years to catch hold just in the research community. And it hasn't yet reached lay people. I think an area where the allostatic process has really taken off is in pain science. Hmm. Chronic pain is really, really shitty. It's shitty for the person that's experiencing it. And it's very tricky to treat for practitioners because it's so multidimensional. And for a long time, the prevailing model of chronic pain was trying to fix the problem and trying to have that person get back to what life was like without chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And only more recently has cutting edge pain science said that almost never works. And what does work is working through a process with someone that's suffering from chronic pain and helping them realize that they might never get back to what their life was like before but they can reorder somewhere else and still have a very meaningful and fulfilling life. And what the research shows is that when people can make that step, their physical experience of pain often gets better. Hmm. This has really been pioneered at the Mayo Clinic's Pain and Rehabilitation Science Center. But you know, you can think of pain, there's this shorthand equation I use in the book that pain times resistance equals suffering. So the more that we resist pain, the more that we suffer. And often change is a kind of pain. It's, yeah. it's a shot to our stability, our sense of self, our identity, our sense of how things should be. And that's going to hurt. You know, the, like There is no avoiding some suffering in, in human life. But I think the more that we resist, the more that we suffer. Yet we've been kind of brought up and trained in this homeostasis model that says that we should resist. And I think it's a natural tendency, you know, in the same way that I think the first instinct with pain, both as a person who's experiencing it and as a practitioner is to often try to mask it, you know, is to try to treat it with ibuprofen or Tylenol or opioids to try to disguise it, to minimize it. And yet that is not really the successful long-term way to, to handle and to overcome pain and same is true for change. Can we can we pause there? Because I think the the ibuprofen and Advil and opioids, it's a metaphor for how we deal with so many changes in our life mm. beyond just physical pain. There's this tension between problem solving and trying to fix on the one hand and acceptance on the other. Mm -hmm. And I think like the work of a mature adult, our life's work is trying to figure out where we want to be on that spectrum for just about everything that happens in our life. And it's possible to over accept, to say, I'm just gonna kind of wallow in despair. And it's possible to over fix and over problem solve and freak out by trying to get something right like it was before. For every disruption in our life, physical, psychological, social, it's kind of stepping back and saying, where on that spectrum between problem solving and acceptance am I? And how's mm -hmm. that working for me? So let's start getting into the nuts and bolts of how we get good at change. And the sort of thread throughout your book is that we should cultivate rugged flexibility. When you first hear that phrase, rugged flexibility, it sounds almost like an oxymoron, doesn't it? it sound, those sound like incompatible traits. Most people hear rugged and flexible, and you're spot on. They think these are uh, these are opposites. To be rugged is to be solid, durable, maybe even a little rigid. And to be flexible is to be soft, to be supple, to bend without breaking. And in the face of change, most people identify with one of these two camps. And when I did the reporting and researching for this book, what I found is that those who successfully navigate change, individuals, organizations, and again, even entire cultures, they're not either or, they're both and. They're mm. both rugged and flexible. Because for most changes, we benefit from having some ruggedness and some flexibility and from marrying these two qualities that are often thought of as opposing. I think one way to approach this question of how to be both rugged and flexible is through the story of Tommy Caldwell, who's a legendary rock climber and who, in the span of a, a pretty short period of time in the early 2000s, went through two catastrophic, you could say, changes in his life. One of the things that, that Caldwell, you say, was able to do as he processed uh, these two capital T traumas 
was shift from having mode to being mode. What is the distinction there and why is it important? To have or to be is a title of um, a body of work that became a book published by Eric Fromm, who's one of my favorite intellectuals. He is a humanist thinker in the um, mid-1900s. And Fromm essentially says that we all operate in these two modes. And having mode is when we define ourselves by what we possess. Those can be objects. I have this car. I have this house. I have this income. Those can be people. I have this partner. I have this friend. I have this child. And those can be skills. I have this ability to climb. I have this ability to bench press 300 pounds. I have this ability to write, whatever it might be. And he said that when we define ourselves in terms of what we have, we become fragile because anything that we have is going to change. It's just the nature, right? Reality is impermanent. And often those things can be taken away. But if we define ourselves by who we are, our essential qualities, that is so much more anti-fragile because that can't be taken away. So rather than having a skill as an athlete, we can be an athlete. Rather than having a child or having a partner, we can be in love. Mm-hmm. And this shift in orientation really allows us to better navigate the initial blows of change. Because if we're in a being orientation or a being relationship with something, it can't be taken away. So Tommy Caldwell, you know, he had a finger and he lost it, but he was a climber. And even with four and a half fingers on his hand, nine and a half total, he could still be a climber. I think that really made him less fragile to that change and that he could be in conversation with his circumstances instead of have something and lose it. And another thing I think Caldwell was able to do as he navigated his way out of these two traumas was set reasonable expectations, right? So I don't think he sitting there in the hospital room down to nine fingers thinking, I'm going to do the most difficult climb that humans have ever done. I'm going to show the world. I think he was probably thinking like, you know what, if I can just figure out a way to like maybe get back to my local gym and climb in some capacity again, that's a win. Talk a little bit about expectation setting and why that is so key to this rugged and flexible mindset. I'm going to start by conceptualizing the brain as a prediction machine that makes its way through the world by constantly predicting what's going to happen next based on all the available data that it has. And this is a very good thing, right? If the brain wasn't a prediction machine like this, we would never get anything done. We'd have to literally like test everything. You know, you'd you'd walk up to your computer and your microphone and you wouldn't know what it was, but you're making mm-hmm. a prediction that your computer is going to open because it has in the past. So objective reality is always filtered by our predictions or by our expectations for it. And we tend to feel good when our predictions are accurate. Uh, There's fascinating neuroscience that shows that we literally use less energy when our predictions are accurate. That makes sense because we don't have to update them. But when our predictions or when our expectations are not accurate, we feel a lot of distress. And one way to think about change, whether it's a big change like losing your finger or a small change like getting stuck in traffic on the way to an important meeting or your dog having diarrhea in the middle of your house is it's a shift in what you thought was going to happen in that moment, in Mm -hmm. that year, maybe even in your life. And if we can't update our expectations for reality, then we feel a lot of distress. Our brain doesn't know what to do. The shorthand equation for this is that our happiness or our mood or our ability to be equanimous and calm in any given moment is a function of our reality minus our expectations. So when our expectations are better than our reality, we tend not to feel so good. And I want to get out of conceptual terms and make this real. Anyone that's ever run a marathon knows how much mile 20 sucks. And it's a good thing that they know it because when they get to mile 20, they're prepared for it to suck. If you went into a marathon and you were told that you'd feel great at mile 20, everybody would quit at mile 20. (laughs) Same feelings, same heart rate, same level of dehydration, very different results. One person would quit, one person would keep running. Yeah, and it is, I mean, so much to say there. One, yes, as esoteric as it sounds, I think we should just 
drill into listeners like this is a remarkable discovery in the field of neuroscience that's fairly recent that what we think of as our conscious experience of being out in the world our brains are not just constantly filtering the world in real time. This this notion that we're just walking around making predictions and, and hopefully those predictions are right, it's really fascinating. Another great example that you give in the book that I love is we've known for years that the Scandinavian nations, Denmark and Sweden, Norway, they are the happiest people on earth. And I've always wondered, like, well, is it because they, they have a great social safety net? Is it something about all the oily fish that they eat? Is it that the sun never sets in the summertime? And you cite some research that suggests the reason that folks in Scandinavia are so happy is they just have lower expectations than we do here in the U.S. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Um, their expectations are much more in alignment with reality. And, and in their case, they, they tend to set low expectations. And I'm glad you mentioned this because this is like a, a pushback that I always get, right? Like my first book was called Peak Performance. Mm -hmm. So people are like, are you saying that like we shouldn't strive for excellence, that we should set a low bar? And the answer is unequivocally no. I'm not saying that we should go around like Eeyore and um, yeah. all of us should, should just expect the worst always. What I am saying is that we live in a culture that tends to really over index on expecting the best. Mm -hmm. almost like a Pollyanna-ish toxic positivity at times. And that's not good. And the best expectation is the one that we can quickly update to match reality. Not better than reality, not worse than reality, just to see reality like it is. And our subject matter here is change, right? So in the midst of change, I'm not saying that we should say, oh, everything's going to suck. What I am saying is we should just like really try to get an accurate look at things, realizing that most people in the West have a bias towards optimism. Let's take a quick break. But before we do, I want you to take a minute and just think about your core values. These are the key things that define you. It could be something like creativity, determination, fairness, persistence, intellect. Think about what your core values are. And when we come back, Brad's gonna tell you how you can use them to succeed in life and in your career. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Let's shift from the rugged and flexible mindset to talking a little bit about how you can cultivate a rugged and flexible identity. And you say that I think one of the reasons a lot of us struggle with change is that our identities are made out of too few ingredients, right? So if my whole identity is podcaster and then I get a call from LinkedIn next week that they are canceling this show, that would be catastrophic for me, right? That would destroy my entire sense of self. But if my identity is broad, if it's not just podcaster, but maybe it's also writer, journalist, husband, coffee aficionado, I've got a sturdier foundation and I am better equipped to weather change, to weather surprising circumstances. That's exactly right. The metaphor that I like to use is it's really helpful to think of identity like a house. Mm. And if your house just has one room and that room floods, it's going to be really disorienting. Whereas if your house has multiple rooms, when room A floods, you can go seek refuge in room B, C, D, and E. Mm. So let's move from conceptual to practical again. And I want to do that here by telling the, the story just briefly of uh, Niels Vanderpool. Yeah. The speed skater who won gold medals in the 10K and 5K in the 2022 Winter Games and who also set the world record. The 25-year-old from Sweden. 
driving round the spin one last time. A gold medal is coming here for Nils van der Poel. Will it be a world record as well? It is! It's a world record! Amazing! He is the greatest speed skater, long course speed skater, I should clarify, to ever step foot on the planet. And we should say quickly, too, that his world record is like 13 seconds faster than anyone else in the world today. Can Like, it's not some of these world records, you know, it's a matter of inches or, or milliseconds. I mean, this is like this guy is so clear and away a super, super, superstar. That's right. He he is the best ever and perhaps will be for a very long time, uh, to your point. In the lead up to the 2022 games, uh, Vanderpool was underperforming in in past major events. He took stock of this and tried to figure out why. And one of the main ingredients to his underperformance that he identified was fear. He had a lot of fear tied into speed skating. Fear that he would get injured. Fear that he might trip in a race. Fear that he would get ill the night before a race. Or just fear that he wouldn't perform at his best for really any reason. And he didn't skate well, carrying that enormous weight of fear on his shoulders. Vanderpool said, why am I scared? Why is there so much fear tied to this sport that I once loved as a kid? And in his analysis, he realized that his entire identity got wrapped up with the sport. So there was no Niels Vanderpool other than Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. Mm. It was everything. That was the only room in his house. And that led to a lot of fear. So in the lead up to the 2022 games, Vanderpool did something that is almost unheard of for a world-class Olympic caliber athlete. He took a normal weekend. (laughs) He said that, you know, I got friends that are teachers, doctors, and they go out, they get beer on the weekend, they eat pizza, they go on hikes. You know, they just don't sit and get massage and sit in compression boots all day. They, They do stuff with their life. They have fun. They have hobbies. They have pursuits. They build community. So Vanderpool said, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to take from Friday night to Monday morning off, not just off of training, but off of being Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. Mm-hmm. I'm going to reconnect with friends. I'm going to go on hikes. I'm going to find other interests. I'm going to start reading. I'm going to follow my intellectual passions. And I'm sure a lot of people at the time thought he was nuts because Olympians are training 24 seven. Like it is a lifestyle, right? You always hear that. Uh, but for Vanderpool, that got in the way. It's called identity foreclosure is what researchers call this. Like his identity got too narrow and it made him really nervous. And the result, like the proof's in the pudding. He had that immaculate performance. And after he published this training manifesto called How to Skate a 10K and a 5K, the the, the two races that he won. And there was a lot of fascinating exercise science and training in there, but there was also so much philosophy. Mm -hmm. And in there, he writes that the meaning that he derived on those weekends outside of sport allowed him to shed his fear. And it also supported the meaning that he got out of sport because he became a fuller human being. I think this is such an important and powerful story because this is someone that diversified their identity at the highest level in a field where so many people struggle with depression, substance use, and anxiety upon transitioning out of sport because of identity foreclosure, because they only have one room in their house. And he's the best ever. Yeah, Because again, the common retort is like, well, don't you have to go all in and be obsessed? But I can give you an example of someone that is truly the best at what they do and had diversified his identity. And it doesn't mean that he was like a quote unquote balanced person. He wasn't spending the same amount of time in those various areas of his life. He still trained 40 hours a week, Mm -hmm. but he had other sources of meaning. And I just think that is so important because all of the rooms in our metaphorical houses are going to change. Kids are going to move out of the house. Relationship with our bodies and how we look, we're going to age. Careers, we're going to get laid off. We're going to get promoted. Eventually, we're all going to retire. We're going to stop working. Sport relationship, you mentioned I had a major orthopedic surgery. I had to give up a sport that I loved. Like back to having and being, right? Like we're never going to have everything the way that we want it in these rooms. There's going to be shifts. And if we only have one room, when a shift happens in that room, it's a lot harder to endure that change. Whereas when we can lean on other sources of identity and other sources of meaning that provides some ruggedness and some stability through the changing weather patterns. Vanderpool is such a great model, such a great role model, I think, for young people. Because I think when you're young, 
you are told that if you want to be the best at something, you have to be obsessive and single-minded about it. And as a result, when we're young, and I think you, you maybe have had this experience, I certainly have, you define yourself by a really limited set of variables. You know, I am this job. I am this relationship. I am good at school. I am et cetera, et cetera. And that is such a perilous way to go about life. And I think having a model that shows you Yes, you can be really intensely focused on something and work at it with all your heart, but also you have to be open to other experiences. You have to have time away. You have to have other things that fill you up. It's, I think, really important for young people to hear that. Yeah, me too. I, I couldn't agree more. And this is one of the things that I've realized as I've gotten older has just been so important to my own ability to withstand change is um, is having a couple really solid different rooms in in the house that is my identity. And oftentimes that requires like kind of forcing yourself to spend time in one. Like it's very easy to get so wrapped up in something and just want to go all in. And that's a lovely feeling, you know, yeah. Hallie Chicksemi, Hallie would call it flow. And like you can be in flow for a couple of minutes, but you can be in flow for a year on a creative project when you don't want to spend time with friends and you don't want to go to the gym, the emphasis can shift, but you just never want to close those doors entirely. Like you never want to leave parts of yourself totally behind unless you're really ready to do that because you never know when you're going to want to emphasize those parts of yourself. It's understandable why we get singularly focused on things, right? Because I think especially, you know, I was talking about being young a moment ago and, you know, when you're young and someone says to you, wow, you know, you're really good at X. That feels great. And so all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool. How do I get more of that? That I love that affirmation. Maybe I can build up a little bit more of my personality around this. Maybe I really lean into whatever that X is. It's writing, it's sport, it's et cetera. It's really scary to say, okay, well, what happens if I try something else? What happens if I add another dimension to my identity? And this is a new dimension where maybe I'm not getting that affirmation. Maybe I'm not getting that praise. Maybe it's different. Maybe it's not remunerative. I think it's scary to expand, you know, if you think about the, to, to sort of mess with this metaphor of the house, if you think about as you grow, like you're adding additions to your home, right? You maybe start in a studio and now you've got a second bedroom and now you've got a garage and it's scary to add, to add on, you know, it's expensive. Especially, especially well, Ian, it, it is expensive. It, and especially if you think that adding on is going to detract from some of those other areas. Right. And I think that's like where there's this myth of greatness that like you have to just be focused on one area and it's a zero sum game with other areas of your life. And the research just doesn't bear that out at all. Yeah. It shows that people that have some cross domain experience and cross domain joy tend to be a lot better at what they do and also so much more resilient to change. So a another way that we can cultivate identities that are able to endure change, that can handle disorder events is to construct identities that are based less on specific skills and more on core values. Maybe you could tell us what exactly a core value is and if you're comfortable, you know, share one or two of your own. A core value is a quality that you aspire toward that you practice when you are at your best, when you're feeling your best, when you're doing the best, uh, it can be a North star that you wanna orient your life around. So I'll just start with some broad examples and then we can narrow into me if, if you insist. Um, so wisdom, intellect, creativity, health, relationships, reputation, integrity, very lofty ideals. Again, these, these are like the guideposts for us as a person. I think as it relates to change, you can imagine a river, and I'm not the first person that did this. Uh, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously said, you can't step into the same river twice because a river is always changing. Mm -hmm. And I think we're a lot like that river ourselves, our identity, we're always changing. But a river doesn't exist without a bank. Otherwise, it's just like random water. <laughs> and I think the bank of the river that is us are our core values. Like that's what kind of channels our evolution over time. What are our core values? And then how do we use them to navigate uncertainty? When the path forward's not clear, how can we rely on our core values to help guide us? Um, so that is the importance of, of core values. And then you wanted to know perhaps one or two of mine. Yeah, if you're, if you're willing to share. Yeah, so one of my um, core values is, is presence. Okay. 
And I define that as just being fully there for the people and things that I care about. Sometimes I even call it love. Sounds a little woo-woo, but I think like attention and presence and love are basically one and the same. And then another core value of mine is health. Mm. Since you shared, I'll share. So I should say for for future readers of this book, there's a very helpful in the appendix long list of core values. And you sort of encourage folks to look at that list and come up with sort of three to five. I'll share one for me is, is creativity. I think that's one of my core values. I hope that's one of my core values. But the truth, if I'm being honest, is that I used to have a lot of creative outlets. I used to write songs. I used to write fiction. I used to write journalism that I actually don't spend that much time on anymore. And so if I were one of your, you do a lot of, a lot of coaching. If I, if I were one of your clients, what would you say to me? Would you say maybe that core value of creativity isn't actually serving you anymore and it's time to let it go? Should I try to find a way to kind of reinstate it in my life? Is it possible that it still is here and I'm just kind of looking for it in the wrong places? Ah, you know, the the short answer is it depends. I'd have to know a lot more. The longer answer is I'd be curious, like you're involved in this really creative company, The Next Big Idea. My understanding is you're integral to it. You host this podcast, which is a pretty creative pursuit. Uh, for this podcast, you read across diverse genres and interview all kinds of people. So I would kind of push back and say, creativity is probably a pretty big part mm. of your life. That would be my my initial gestalt. But you could tell me all the ways I'm wrong because like I said I I'm just, you know, getting to know you. No, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, certainly I feel that I put a lot of creative energy into this podcast. Maybe what I'm struggling with is and I think a lot of people probably struggle with this is making that transition from framing our identities around skills to framing our identities around core values, right? And so I think for a long time, my identity was framed around like, oh, I like to write songs or I like to write poems. And those are specific mediums, specific genres, specific skills that now don't occupy a lot of my time. Nevertheless, I've redirected that creative energy perhaps into podcasting or into uh, I'm trying to get good at making pasta. Um, so yeah, right. so maybe I think it's that. It's that yeah. disconnect between skills and values. Yeah, you're a creative person. And and perhaps some of that is based on change. So uh, again, without hardly knowing anything, I've so enjoyed this conversation, but I, I, you know, I'd be lying if I said I know you well. But if you followed a life trajectory like most people, your needs for secure financial security have probably changed. Um, how you spend your time has probably changed. Mm -hmm. So perhaps when you were younger and you had a different set of constraints, you'd have more time to write songs and write fiction. And maybe you thought you'd even get paid to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then at a certain point, you realize that, hey, like there's some constraints and, and I'm not going to get paid to do it, or at least I'm not going to get paid to do it right now. Or without knowing details, maybe you don't want to get paid to do it. But what you did looks very different than going into like a super rigorous analytical job with spreadsheets all day. Then I'd say there'd be some values conflict. But to me, you guided the river exactly where it needed to go. You say, hey, like, I, I'm a, what does it look like to be a creative person? And you're applying that value differently. I'm glad you brought up getting paid to do it because I actually think this framework of core values is really helpful in terms of thinking through our careers. You know, you, you, you have this great line in the book. You say the portability of core values mean that you can practice them in nearly all circumstances. And we obviously live in a world that is changing fast. We work in a world that is changing fast. I mean, you cannot go a day now without seeing a headline about how AI is coming for your job. And it seems to me that identifying your core values and allowing them to guide how you think about your career and what careers, what jobs you pursue is a lot better than sort of saying, well, okay, what did I study in school? How good am I at Microsoft Office? Okay, these are the jobs I can do. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think like, I call it values-based decision-making. And um, anytime there's like a big life juncture, I think it never hurts and it almost always helps to ask, well, what are my values? And what would it look like to try to align my life with my values? What would it look like to practice my values? What would give me the best chance of living in alignment with my core values? 
Research suggests that thinking about and identifying and being in touch with your core values actually helps you stay calm in the midst of change, right? You, you cite this really fascinating study that was done at the University of Pennsylvania where they hooked folks up to or put folks in MRI machines, presented them, bombarded them with potentially upsetting change. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that study? Mm, so in in this study, exactly that. Researchers put people in an fMRI machine where you could look at their brains and did exactly what you said, bombarded them with change that would be threatening to their day-to-day lives and how they went about their own uh, respective stabilities. And the control group was not given any instructions prior to this. And then the other group was told to reflect on their core values. And the group that was told to reflect on their core values Under the hood, they showed less activity in the part of the brain that was associated with perceiving threat and more activity in the part of the brain that is associated with perceiving challenge. So they had this deep neurological response. Now, that in itself is fascinating, Mm -hmm. but for people that follow neuroscience, they might say, well, we really don't know much about the brain. And it's very hard to like take a conclusion from an fMRI study. And I'm there with you. I'm very skeptical of this. But- What makes me less skeptical in this case is that then those people subjectively said they didn't feel fear. Other markers like blood pressure, cortisol, other markers of stress, nope, didn't feel those. So something very real was going on. And to me, I think what that is, is it's back to this concept of rugged flexibility in your values being your source of ruggedness. If you know your values, if you're in touch with them, if you're reflecting on them, whatever change comes your way, it won't feel as stressful and destabilizing Because you know that those core qualities are portable. They're going to be there. That's who you are. Whereas if you're not in touch with those things, when the ground feels like it's slipping under you, then there is no ground under you. But if you have those core values, it can be the ground. So I think there's enough hypothesis, enough theory, enough objective imaging, and enough subjective reporting that I think this is a big and important truth. And it's an important truth that applies not only to individuals, but also to organizations. You give the example of the New York Times. And I think everyone listening knows that the past few years have been really difficult for the newspaper business. 2,500 newspapers have gone out of print since 2005. That's a quarter of the industry. And yet the New York Times is thriving. It's, it's doing better than ever. And I think a cynic might say, well, that's because all their all their rivals went out of print. But you would say, no, it's actually because what the Times has done and what other organizations, other journalistic organizations have failed to do is the Times has really figured out how do we drive this business based on our core values as opposed to things that are fleeting. 100%. Dean Bacay, who's one of the executive editors, has this beautiful quote. Uh, he essentially says that During this period of disruption in how people spend their time and attention, the New York Times had to step back and say, what is essential? What is core? What are our values? And then what's merely habit? And we need to pay a lot of attention to the former and be willing to let go of the latter. That's exactly what the Times has done. So they were able to take their values of integrity and excellent journalism And their value wasn't necessarily like written words on hard copy paper delivered to people's homes. Nowhere was that in their core values. Mm -hmm. And they adapted. And now the Times is really a multimedia company. Significantly more people, gobs more people access the Times through their phones or computers than in print. They invested heavily in podcasts and really professionalized podcasts, The Daily, The Ezra Klein Show. And they want their readers to have fun. So they expanded to crossword puzzles, cooking apps, all sorts of things like that. So I think it's a really good example of an organization that used their values as a source of ruggedness and then was very flexible in how they applied them. The thing that has been interesting watching the Times is that by following their core values and letting things that were no longer working fall away or or no longer be central to their focus, it's allowed them to innovate in a way that maybe does set them up for success in the future. So I've heard it said that the New York Times internally thinks of of the organization as having three front pages. There's the homepage of the website. There's that morning's episode of The Daily. And there's that morning's edition of The Morning Newsletter, which is their sort of marquee daily newsletter. And It's a great 
example of focusing on you know, our core values, our journalism, expertise, thoughtful analysis. If those are your core values, you can say, okay, well, now we can explore them in really different avenues that we couldn't if our only job was to print a newspaper and drop it on people's doorsteps. And you're able to reach people in, in new ways, in new formats, and reach people how they want to be reached. You know, someone might say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't have time to read the newspaper every day, but I certainly have time to put the daily on when I take my dog for a walk. Or I don't have time to listen to the daily, but I definitely have time to just give the morning newsletter a quick read. So I think it's such a great paradigm for businesses to follow that pursuing core values can actually lead to innovation. That's right. Isn't that just fascinating that of those three front pages, not one is the front page of the newspaper. Yeah, maybe they do think. I uh, maybe there's a fourth. I'm sure there are there are older hands but, but in, the, in the newsroom. Like, <laughs> even if even if the older hands would say they're a fourth, no one's going to really balk at that or challenge yeah. it. I think it's fascinating, but of course not because millions more people get the newsletter than yeah. the newspaper. Yeah, for sure. And that to me, like that is just so flexible. Uh, and that's why The Times is, is thriving. That's why The Times is one of the few newsrooms that's expanded uh, and, and not had to succumb to the same kind of massive layoffs or foreclosures that other newsrooms and newspapers unfortunately have. Coming up, Brad shares a foolproof tool that you can start using today to start tackling some changes in your life. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I, I want to end, Brad, by, by talking about one more tool that you provide that can help us process and handle moments of change. And what I like about this one is you can kind of use it right out of the box. I think listeners can can apply this to changes big and small, like today, right now. And I'm talking about making this shift from reacting to responding. So first, why don't you tell us why it is better to respond than to react? Reacting tends to be very rash. You go on autopilot. It's generally very hot. It's emotionally driven. Responding is thoughtful, it's discerning, it's deliberate. And in our species' deep past, uh, reacting was really beneficial because our biggest problems and our biggest changes were being chased by predators or about to get bit by a snake. And um, you want to react. So we've got all this hardware that's really primed for escaping tigers and snakes. But in the modern world, for most of us, uh, the tigers and snakes are paper tigers and snakes. They're, they're not real. And we benefit more from responding when challenges and change occurs because it allows us to use our prefrontal cortex, the more evolved parts of our brain. However, it's very hard because we're fighting against that millennia of evolution that has primed us to react. But when we react to a change, we almost always regret it. And when we respond to a change, we tend to be able to look in the mirror that night and sleep well. And so one way that we can get ourselves from reaction to response is to follow the system that you call the four P's. Walk us through those. So the first P is to pause, to take a few deep breaths. In the case of a massive change, like a lost finger, uh, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, or a positive massive change, the birth of a child and marriage, 
It's going to be more than a few deep breaths. It will likely be a few months, maybe even a few years. Pause. Process. That's the second P. Really understand what's happening. Don't deny. Don't resist. Don't engage in magical thinking. Then make a plan. This is where you get to assert your agency. Figure out what you can control and what you can't. And then focus on the former. Ask yourself, what skills, resources am I equipped with? What can I bring to bear on the situation? And then only then proceed. It's very different than reacting, which I shorthand is two Ps, which is you panic and you pummel ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, so you pause, you process, you plan, and you proceed. I just want to ask you one one thing, which which has occurred to me in the course of this conversation, which is, you know, we've been talking about change is the only constant in life. Change is ubiquitous. I'm wondering, though, if there are times where it's actually the wrong move to embrace change. You know, I was thinking about, I live in Los Angeles and right now screenwriters are on strike and you know they want increased pay, they want protections from AI, from producers replacing them with, with artificial intelligence. And the studios are kind of saying, well, look, you know, the business is changing. We have to adapt. We don't know where AI is going to go. So we don't really want to make any guarantees. You know, our profits aren't what what they used to be. We all have to sort of change together. Are the screenwriters wrong to to be standing their ground and to be saying, we don't care, studios, if you're saying that everything is changing and we have to follow along? Like, we have these core values. We have these beliefs that we want to stand up for. If... Your core values are saying, no, this is a regressive policy, then yeah, you should fight against it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that things aren't going to change. There's still going to be a reorder. There's no way that this thing ends and you know, Hollywood looks the same. Right. But it does make sense to stand up for your values. So let's talk about issues like regressive voting policies. So to try to make it harder for people to vote. That's to me like a change worth fighting. Why? Because if you have core values of liberalism and of protecting minorities and of people having rights in this country, mm-hmm. then the the change is actually, you know, it's a bad thing if it 100%. if it goes in that direction. So I, I do think that's where our values really come into play. And I think in these instances, it is so important though to still practice rugged flexibility. Yeah. Because I think this is such an important point to end with. I feel like we're probably of the same generation, so we spend time on the internet. In an internet culture, you get these two camps. And one camp is what I'm going to broadly label uh, Pollyanna thinking and toxic positivity. Okay, These are people that say, everything is fine. I walk to my farmer's market. I live in my nice house. I'm not going to worry. Life is short. I'm going to enjoy my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always been problems. The other camp says... Everything is going to shit. The world is burning. Rights are getting regressive. And there's nothing that any individual can do because this is all structural. So I'm just going to sit here in some intellect that is really just dressed up despair. And I think both of those approaches are lazy cop-outs because they both absolve you of the need to do anything. Because if everything is great, then there's no reason to try to fix anything. There's no reason to try to improve everything. If everything is so broken and so structural that it's beyond hope, then there's no incentive for you as an individual to do anything to make the situation better. So I think in between the chasm of toxic positivity and Pollyanna and burying your head in the sand and then despair and nihilism, there is this huge gap. And that's where we need to be now more than ever. Because there is a lot that's broken about the world. And if we're going to fix it, we can't become blind to it, but we also can't become broken people. All right. Well, you've given us our marching orders and you've given us a lot of tools that we can use to make change globally, to make change systemically and to make change in our own lives. Brad Stolberg, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Caleb. Uh, It's been a mutual pleasure. Brad is the author of the new book, 
master of change, how to excel when everything around you is changing, including you. It's just out this week. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. If you enjoy the show, let us know. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Really helps us get the word out. You might also want to check out our app. I know you've heard us talk about it a million times before, but it really is fantastic. It is full of audio summaries written and read by the best authors in the world. Go to your app store and search for The Next Big Idea. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Kayla Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. Rufus Griscom is our executive producer. We couldn't make this show without the rugged and flexible team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network. See you next week.